Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11. We're about halfway through this chapter, and I may be a little bit too much too ambitious in thinking we'll get through the rest of it. <laughs> but it does fit together as a, as a unit, so I want to at least uh, read it all the way through and... and uh, hopefully get through, but if not, let's begin our consideration of this uh, passage. It, it really does hang together. Uh, the great uh, Baptist preacher Spurgeon says, the, the wonderful portion of scripture which makes up the rest of this chapter deals with three things about which there has been much disputing, namely the responsibility of man, the sovereign election of God, and the free invitations of the gospel. They are all here in happy combination. I love the way you put that, uh, in happy con uh, combination. The doctrines, the teachings, uh, teachings of Scripture are always in happy combination with one another. They're always in harmony, and I think we'll see that reflected in this passage. Now, remember, this passage comes in a narrative section, but even in the narrative sections within the Gospel, we come across places where Jesus is teaching. So this isn't one of those five marked out sections of teaching in Matthew. It's one of the narrative sections in between, but nevertheless, we're, we're in sort of coming in, in verse 16, in, in the middle of some teaching that Jesus is giving in response to an incident. You remember the sort of the uh, triggering event here was the questions sent by John the baptizer through his disciples to Jesus. The question, are you the one who is to come, or do we look for another? And in that plaintive question, we, we heard John struggle with doubt as he's languishing there in prison, perhaps knowing that his life will be taken from him uh, very soon. And, and, and so Jesus Jesus very tenderly, uh, we saw, encourages John to persevere in his confidence in Jesus, to, to remember what he really already knew, uh, but needed to be reminded of and encouraged in. Uh, but he's also used this uh, question from John as an opportunity to define for the crowds that are overhearing this exchange not only who John is, but who he is. And so we began to look at that uh, last time we had an opportunity to be in this chapter as he described John's ministry as that of the greatest of the prophets. The greatest of the prophets because he was the forerunner of the anointed one, the Messiah, Jesus himself. And, and Jesus underscored the, the significance of that, this particular moment in which he is speaking. Something new is happening here. The kingdom of God is breaking into human history in the person of Jesus Christ. And so he underscored the significance of that. Now, sadly, sadly, as he underscores the significance of that present moment, he's going to have to speak a word of judgment to the people that are living in that present moment because they have failed to perceive the truth of what God is doing. And so that's where we come into 
our text today, verse 16. Jesus speaking to the crowds. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. Son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. All these words run a whole gamut of emotion and truth, don't they? We're going to, to really see so much in these verses, uh, beginning with uh, Jesus' rather humorous, uh, humorous characterization of this generation. By this generation, of course, he means the people living at that time. Uh, remember, he has just said that this generation that is living is seeing uh, the, the coming of the kingdom in his person, and, and what's been their response? What's there been, been their response to John the Baptist, the forerunner, as well as to Jesus, the anointed one, and he compares them to kids. So Jesus seems to have noticed children a lot. Uh, and he's seen children playing in the marketplace. And like children of, uh, of every culture, every generation, uh, the, the kids in Jesus' day like to imitate their adults, the adults that they saw. And, and so they played at what they saw uh, adults doing. I remember my brother Sam and I used to play church in the morning before we went to church. <laughs> my mother would dress us up in our Sunday clothes and forbid us from going outside or doing anything rambunctious lest we get dirty. <laughs> 
So what else can we do? We play church, okay? We take turns being the music director or the preacher or whatever. Well, the, the kids that Jesus is seeing here, they, they're playing at weddings and funerals. These would have been the big events in, in their culture, in the life of their little towns and cities. And, and, and so weddings were times when, when not just the family, but the whole community would come together and celebrate. And there would be music and there would be dancing. And, and likewise, they came together at times of funerals. And as expressive as they were, as a people, as a culture, at the weddings, they were just as expressive at the funerals, and so they would wail. And it was a sign of respect for the loss that a family had experienced, for there to be wailing and songs of lament at a time like that. And so Jesus has seen kids playing like that, only on some occasions the other kids aren't really cooperating. <laughs> you know, some of these kids over here, they, they want to play, and so they say, well, let's play wedding, and they start playing the music, and these other kids over here turn up their noses, cross their hands, say, no, nah, we don't want to play that. And so, they, well, let's play funeral then, and they start the wailing and the dirt, and then the kids don't want to play that either. They just don't want to play, period. They just don't want to cooperate. And Jesus is saying, of course, uh, this generation is like that. You know, John the baptizer comes, and, you know, he's just ecstatic. He's, 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 very, he's very much a, a man of the land. He's, he's living out in the wilderness, living off of the wilderness. And, and he, he shuns normal culture. And he, and he calls out a message of judgment and repentance, and, and you despise him and his message. In fact, because they're rejecting their message, they're attacking him. This is an ad hominem attack, right? They're, they're not really refuting his argument. They're not really engaging his message. They're attacking him. People often do that with the gospel, right? They, they, they won't engage the message of the gospel. They'll attack whoever's giving that message, and so they do this to John. He's a crazy guy. Who dresses like that? Who acts like that? And so they reject him, and then Jesus says, but here I come. I'm participating in the normal events of, of the culture. You know, I, I, I go to, to feast. I participate in the... And the banquets that uh, anyone who uh, throws one and invites me, I, I'll go to it and spend time with them. And, and yet, instead of saying, well, here's a guy like us, you know, we ought to listen to him. You reject my message as well. You, you, you attack me as being a glutton and a, a drunkard. You're not satisfied either way. What's he communicating here? He, he's saying, of course... They're rejecting the message of God. They're rejecting the message of God. You're like children that cannot be satisfied. Uh, you know, it's, it's easy for us sometimes uh, to reject the message because the messenger is not quite what we would like. <laughs> we need to be careful about that. These people are missing something vital. They're rejecting the message that God sent. Well, what's the consequence for that? It's judgment. 
It's judgment. It's interesting that Jesus, speaking in a prophetic role here, remember he's the prophet and priest and king without equal, and so he's speaking here as a prophet, and he's pronouncing judgments as a prophet, as the prophet that fulfills Moses' command, or Moses' prophecy that there will be a prophet that the people were to listen to. And so he, he denounces the cities where most of his mighty works have been done. Why does he denounce them? Don't miss this. He denounces them because they don't repent. And right here, we see the whole reason behind Jesus' mighty works. They weren't just to impress people. They weren't to build a name for himself. They were, to, they were to give people an opportunity to repent. They were to see these mighty works that he had done and acknowledge, as some did, this is the hand of God. God is in our midst. We need to listen to this, this person's message and respond. That's what they should have done, but they haven't. Of course, we have just a few of those mighty events recorded in Scripture. Interestingly, we have nothing of what he did in Chorazin here. Uh, this is the only place where Chorazin's mentioned, I think. But evidently, Jesus had done many, many mighty works of healing in that, in that town. And so he pronounces a curse on them, woe to you. This term, woe, sort of sounds the same both in Greek and Hebrew. It has that, that woe sound. <laughs> it's one of those words that sort of sounds like what it means. Woe to you. This is bad. This is judgment, he's saying. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you have been done in Tyre and Sidon. Now, Tyre and Sidon are a couple pagan cities over on the coast of the Mediterranean. They're known for their wealth, for their pagan uh, religions. Uh, they were looked down upon by the Jews. And yet Jesus says, if what I did here had been done there, they would have repented in the most extravagant way. In dust and ashes, they would have repented. Sackcloth and ashes, I mean. They would have repented as a sign of their mourning, their grieving for their sin. It will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And he doesn't let Capernaum off the hook either. Capernaum, remember, is his hometown. After he left Nazareth, he lived in Capernaum, though he made extensive journeys here and there. Capernaum seems to have been his home in Galilee. And even more remarkably here, when he, when he pronounces this word of judgment, he goes back and pulls some phrases out of Isaiah. So, so when he says, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. He's quoting from Isaiah's prophecy against Babylon. It's like he's saying, Capernaum, you're going to be judged like that pagan city Babylon that took your ancestors into, into exile. And goes on to say, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom. You remember Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah, the, the cities of the plain that were destroyed by God in, in Abraham's time. 
Abraham prayed, interceded for them, and they couldn't, couldn't even find a handful of people decent enough to, to keep God from destroying those cities. And yet, and yet Jesus says, Sodom is going to be judged less harshly than you are in the day of judgment. The judgment of God is real. The judgment of God is real. Jesus pronounces judgment on these cities. We, we, we need to remember, of course, that intent of bringing people to repentance, though. Just as Jesus' mighty works were to bring people to a state of repentance, so his words of judgment are to bring people to a place of repentance. Of course, that was the case with the prophets of old, right? And so here, too, I think there's a lesson for us. We, we, need, to, we need to receive God's words of rebuke when we encounter them in the Scriptures. And the Holy Spirit convicts us. Because those are ultimately for our good, that are bring us to repentance. And so that leads us then to, to verse 25. In this context, then, thinking about the fact that most of this generation of Jews has rejected him and will reject him. In that context, Jesus gives a prayer of thanks and praise. That's remarkable, isn't it? Thanks and praise. I thank you, Father. That word literally means to confess, to make a confession. It can mean to confess sin. It can mean to confess faith. We sometimes use it that way. Sometimes it's translated praise. Sometimes, as here, it's translated thanks. You can really translate it either way because it's, it's as if you're saying, I agree with you, God, in what you say and do. So he's saying, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Literally, he says, for such seemed good to you. This is the way that was pleasing to you. This is the way that was good for you. What's Jesus saying here? What he's saying, he's affirming the sovereignty of God and choosing those who respond to his message. That's the explanation, he's saying. People are not saved because they're smarter than others. It's not human intellect. It's not, it's not IQ that saves you. Those who are, are wise in the eyes of the world, those who, who are very knowledgeable, that counts for nothing when it comes to a saving knowledge of faith. That's what Jesus is saying here, isn't it? Instead, what's the deciding factor? It's that God has revealed those truths. Like you reveal something, like you convey something to a little child. He uses the term here for little children is the littlest children. You can even use this of an infant. He's emphasizing the fact that 
that saving faith does not depend on human ability. It does not depend on good works. It does not depend on knowledge. And Jesus affirms that. And notice in verse 27, he's asserting that he is one with the Father in doing this. Right? All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. No one really knows who the Son is except the Father. And conversely, no one knows the Son, knows, no one knows the Father except the Son. There is a knowledge that God has of himself, and no human intellect, no human wisdom can penetrate that. You cannot reason your way to God. Instead, he has to choose to reveal himself. And Jesus says that he participates that there in that in, there in the end of verse 27, the son to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Do, do you see what this doctrine does? What this teaching does? It totally destroys any human confidence. It obliterates any human pride. If you've been brought to faith in Christ, it is totally because of his mercy and grace, not dependent on you in any respect. And why is that good news? Well, it's good news because if it doesn't depend on you, then your eternal salvation is not dependent on you. Your salvation is totally dependent on what God has done for you and revealed to you in Christ. And that's the assurance that you have as a believer. Your assurance is not that you've turned over a new leaf and you're doing better now. Your assurance is not that you've piled up a whole bunch of good works to offset the bad ones you did. No, your assurance is in what God has done in Christ on your behalf. And so that's what creates the basis then for the wonderful invitation in verse 28 and following. So this great truth leads to the great invitation. Come to me. Come to me, Jesus is saying. There's only one way to God. The only way to the Father, remember, he's just seen, is through the Son. You can only know the Father if the, if the Son has revealed him to you. So come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Isn't that a graphic picture of us and our sin? We labor and are heavy laden. Look at the human race. Look at this generation today. It labors and is heavy laden with sin. Weighed down with sin that it cannot overcome. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. If you recognize that you have that burden of sin, come to me and I will give you rest. Relief. 
This is the most pressing need of any human being, isn't it? We have a lot of needs as human beings. We're very frail creatures. We need this and that and the other thing. But here's our most basic need. We need to be relieved from our burden of sin. And Jesus says, come to me and you'll get that rest. But notice it's not a, a mere passivity. Okay? He, he's not, this invitation isn't an invitation to come and then just sort of lay back and do nothing. You were not created for that. Okay? You were created in the image of God, and so you were created hardwired to, to have, have a, a purpose in life, to ha have, have a goal in life, to, to, to be profitable to your Heavenly Father, to your Creator. And so Jesus is saying, okay, I will give you rest, this inner rest that he says in a moment, but you find that rest in a new calling, in a new way of life, in a new kind of bearing. Take my yoke upon you. And of course, here he has, he's using an image familiar to the people of that day of that that yoke, that wooden, usually wooden uh, apparatus, sometimes with some metal in it, that, that an oxen, the oxen wore so they could plow or pull a load. Take my yoke upon you, he says. Take up a new burden, but not a burden like the burden that sin puts on you. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. He's using that the, the word here, learn here, is the same word that's the root for the word disciple. Uh, you, you could translate, uh, back in chapter 10 of Matthew, you could, you could translate that term learners. Jesus called his learners to him. That's the word he's using here. He's saying, become my disciple, isn't he? Take my yoke upon it. Take my task, the task that I give you. Learn from me. Become my disciple. Stop your previous way of learning, your previous way under that burden of sin. Take my yoke and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You will find an inner rest as you submit to me as your master and your teacher. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Are you experiencing that? Where, where are you at in your own walk with the Lord right now? Have you sort of slipped back into that burdened kind of living? Has your Christian life sort of begun to reflect the life of the world, a, a, a life that is weighed down? by concerns and anxieties and by worries. You slipped into perhaps thinking that you're going to earn God's continued favor, that somehow you have to be good enough in order to experience his blessing in life. Jesus is speaking to you here. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Don't, don't you want to know what it is? to have an easy yoke in life.
to know that light burden. That light burden is being obedient to the Lord. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't put expectations on you that you can't meet like other people do. <laughs> he doesn't ex put expectations on you like you sometimes put on yourself. Expectations you can't meet. No, his burden is light. His yoke is easy. Where are you at this stage in, in your life? Some of you are children living at home under the authority of your, your parents. Significant part of the yoke that Christ has for you is learning obedience to your parents. Learning to glorify him as you follow your parents' counsel and direction. Some of you are single, some of you are married. Whatever circumstance you're in, there is a yoke of obedience to the Lord in that. There is a contentment for you to know in that, in that condition. The Lord doesn't purpose for you to be continually anxious and weighed down and, and, and concerned in the calling that he has given to you right where you are. Some of you are, are employees. Some of you are, uh, are, are building a home life. Now, what, whatever that calling is, that's a part of the yoke that, that God has for you. And he wants to teach you how to bear that yoke in a way that glorifies him and is good for you, is easy for you. Are you finding the yoke hard to bear? Well, seek out a Christian friend. Uh, I, I'd be glad to talk with you and search the scriptures with you and pray with you that you would, that you would find that place where you enjoy the peace and rest of heart and, and bearing the, the yoke, learning as Jesus' disciple to glorify him. What a wonderful invitation. And he makes it possible through his Holy Spirit's gift of faith to you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that, that you came and that you made a way for sinners like us, burdened and weighed down with our sin, confused and and help us to put our lives back together. We, we thank you that, that you're in the business of, of rebuilding lives, that you, that you have come so that we might be relieved of, of the burden of our sin and know the forgiveness that is in you and, and know the joy of bearing your yoke, of learning to be your disciple disciples in the in the context in which you've placed us uh, help us to help one another in that to encourage and pray for one another in that regard and and we pray that together as a congregation and and along with all of your people around the world lord that you would that that you would be the the patient teacher that we know that you are uh, that we might learn to to bear the yoke that you've given to us for your glory and for our good in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.